It's Wednesday, April 21st, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. It's the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. My co-host, Rebecca Darst, is off today, so I will instead interview legendary sports columnist Sally Jenkins. Sally has written a column for The Washington Post since the year 2000. She has written 12 books, four of them New York Times bestsellers. She has been named the country's top sports columnist four times by the Associated Press Sports Editors, or the APSE, as it's called. And just last month, the APSE named Sally winner of the 2021 Red Smith Award, which is the, quote, highest sports journalism honor in the country. Sally, thank you so much for joining me on the News Items podcast. Thank you, John. So this won't be a traditional News Items interview. Rebecca and I typically analyze the day's news items, and I want to do the same with you today, obviously with a focus on sports. Here are the four topics I want to discuss with you. Major League Baseball, golf, the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, and sports writing. All right, here we go. Let's start with baseball. Earlier this month, MLB waded into a political firestorm by moving its all-star game from Atlanta to Denver after a controversial voting rights bill was passed in Georgia. Commissioner Robert Manfred told me that the vast majority of players supported his decision. What's your takeaway from the whole situation? I think, you know, we all probably even within our own families feel a certain amount of polarization. And like everyone else, I'm sick of the intramurals. You know, we've got much bigger fish to fry in this country, like China, which we'll talk about. We've got some common opponents here. And I thought it was understandable in the sense that the leagues, all of the professional sports leagues have an issue right now with acknowledging to uh, their constituents and to their players that they have been laggards on social justice and civil rights. And they're trying to make up for that with both their audience and their players. So I understand it from that view. And I think in the long view that they'll be fine. Um, in terms of any audience alienation or hostility, they have to be careful not to alienate their players. And that's a big thing here. And they wouldn't be in this position if they had been a little more progressive and a little not progressive in the political sense, but progressive in the sense of you know understanding who their players are and what is important to them. And that these guys have real and, and women have real conviction. And so, so they're in a, a bit of a fix, you know, and so they're all kind of scurrying to sort of appear a little more enlightened. You know, one of the guys who's been ahead of the game on that is Adam Silver because they were confronted with the Donald Sterling thing. And, and so I, other leagues are still catching up. And I think baseball is understandably trying to demonstrate awareness, not necessarily on one side of the scale or the other, but awareness. Whether the All-Star game should have been, you know, I, I, there's a lot to admire about politicians in Georgia, you know, as well as to be disappointed in potentially, you know, they also like were incredible about kind of holding the line on on what they thought was right and wrong with their state election. And so I, you know, I thought it was regrettable personally, but I do understand Manfred's instinct. Yeah. My sense from, from talking to him is that the players was the initial sort of instigator of the decision but that he enjoyed considerable support from the owners when he made the decision. He obviously pulled them, and he said that they were, you know, overwhelmingly supportive, which I was a little bit surprised by. But there you go. 
You know, I, I just think there's a real sort of awakening happening in all the sports leagues. I think there's some regret about previous blind spots and that's part of what's happening here. And it, you know, you just have to let it play out and say everyone's finding their way through these issues. And the best thing to do is to sort of keep engaging on the subject, you know, and not shut off discussion. And that's why sort of yanking the game away from Georgia, that's a real shutdown move. You know what I mean? Right. Right. That is. You recently wrote a wonderful column about Tiger Woods which was, I think, the best column I read about Tiger Woods, and I think I read virtually all of them. Thank you. Is the game of golf without Tiger diminished, not just as a game itself, but also as a television property, if you will? Obviously, it's not as gripping when you don't have you know, a real titan of the game, one of the all-time greats established and playing the game. You know, that always hurts golf. There have been lulls before, you know, you have to wait for the next great one to come along. And, you know, there was a fairly long period to wait between Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. I mean, they, you know, you only get one a generation um, right. necessarily. And you, and you hope a Phil Mickelson is, is, is comes along and is entertaining enough to sort of fill in that hammock. You know, there's some great players out there. I, you know, Jordan Spieth baffles me right now. I mean, he, he's the, I think the greatest mental competitor I had seen since Nicholas, when he first came out and started winning majors, I thought, oh boy, you know, this guy's got Nicholas's steel. He struggled with his swing. I don't know if he won too much too soon and just got a little content. I don't really know what's going on there. Justin Thomas is going to be a really good player for a really long time, but are they going to grow into guys who can win eight majors? You know, that's what we're waiting to see. I mean, Rory McIlroy, I thought that guy was going to be a, you know, a 10 time major champion. Yeah. At least part of me wonders, do they just get so wealthy and they, you know, they get their cars and they get their boats and they get their toys and they, they love the game, but it's hard to maintain that edge. It really is. The margin of error uh, is so slim out there when you've got a lot of good players. You know, I think there's more talent than I've almost ever seen, but you know, is there that obsessive character who is just going to feel empty if he's not going for the all-time total? That's the question. Yeah. That and doubt. I mean, the minute that you doubt your putting stroke, you're sort of doomed. And, you know, Jordan Spieth has all the tools. The thing that's a little frustrating about him is, you know, if you watched him at the Masters, I mean, that guy committed a bunch of double bogeys and he's still right there when he's making the turn on Sunday. You know, if he just doesn't make a double or a triple bogey at the most inopportune time, he's going to win a bunch more majors. He's got to get the bad number off of his scorecard. I think Jordan has all of the pieces to be, nobody I don't think will be the next Tiger, but I think he could be the marquee player for the game. But there's, as you say, there are too many doubles and triples to make that possible. And, you know, there'll be some guys who, you know, I mean, Curtis Strange was a great player. You know, did he win 10 majors? No. But was he a great watchable player? Yeah. You know, was he a contender? And did he win, you know, his share of majors? Yeah. You know, there's going to be guys like that that are really fun to watch. And they won't just be American players, you know. There'll be another Seve. Yes. Well, Hideki Matsuyama clearly has set the Asian world on fire. Yeah. That was fun during the Masters. They were cutting away to the Japanese broadcast. which <laughs> the, the enthusiasm was through the roof. And you love to see a guy like him. And, and Sergio Garcia did this, too, when he won his Masters. You love to see a guy lose it and then bring it back. Yes. Like getting a hold of yourself is one of the hardest things to do in life, much less sports. And so 
I just love those events. When, when you get to watch that happen at the Masters, it's always so instructive. Right, right. All right, we're going to take a short break for our sponsors to be heard, and we'll be back with Sally shortly. Because it's news items, we have to talk about China and the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, I guess, are still kind of iffy. But everyone's talking about next year's Winter Olympics in Beijing. A lot of countries are considering boycotting the Games. What's the situation with the IOC and the Olympics in China 2022? Well, the IOC has become the best friend of strongmen everywhere, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, they never should have taken the Olympics back to Beijing, given that Beijing broke just about every promise that it made in 2008 on, on human rights. Right. Their human rights abuses are, are much worse than they ever were in 2008. Xi Jinping is a much tougher character. They're a major threat and they're coercive. And for the world to go down there and sit around and pretend that it's all apolitical and that somehow there's something good diplomatically that can come out of the situation for world peace is utter nonsense. Yeah, It's a daydream and a dangerous one. I mean, I'm hopeful that nation after nation will pull out, and I'm all but certain that they won't. And I think it'll be a for the Western world, or the what we used to call the free world, it'll be a, an Olympics of shame, basically. The idea that joining you know, the, the rest of the world in trade and opening the China market was going to open China to democracy was a lovely idea, but it really simply didn't work. Instead of the rest of the world changing China, China is setting out to change the rest of the world. And going back to Beijing under those circumstances was truly immoral, in my view, by the IOC. And we now are in a situation where we have American companies who are essentially financing and sponsoring the destruction of America, potentially, with some of China's stances around the world. Uh, You know, a really smart guy named Matthew Pottinger. I know Matt. I don't know him. I just read him and I just think he's brilliant and a a patriot and all that good stuff. And, you know, he says American companies have a real choice to make. He says American companies have to decide whether they answer to China or whether they are truly American companies. And that's true of Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola and these IOC sponsors, um, these Olympic sponsors, some of our biggest American companies are really being, I think, to a certain extent, coerced by the Chinese government to behave in ways that are not American. I don't know about the wisdom of an international boycott, not sending athletes, you know, a bifurcated Olympics. You know, I think it would be a good idea for the IOC to simply take the Winter Games, the 2022 Winter Games away from Beijing and put them in Canada or Norway or someplace that's capable of hosting them. The IOC won't do that. It doesn't want to alienate China. And therefore, I think the next best thing is for, you know, seven of the 14 top Uh, Olympic sponsors are American companies. And I think these companies need to say, we're not doing it. Right. It seems obvious to me that it's a fantastic political issue for President Biden. And I'm surprised maybe they'll do it later, but it's certainly one that uh, you could revisit again and again and again and say, American companies should side with America, not with China. I mean, that's pretty yeah. pretty, pretty straightforward, right? You know? That'll poll well, let's put it yeah. that way. <laughs> like, I, I get that he, President Biden, wanted that climate change agreement. They just got 
which is why he probably backed off the boycott thing as, as hurriedly as he did. And and Condoleezza Rice is not a fan of boycott. She called Jimmy Carter's boycott feckless, you know. And so the wisdom of an international boycott of the Olympics is debatable. You know, it didn't change the Soviet Union's behavior. A boycott is not going to change China's behavior. But my argument is it will change our behavior. What I think we need to be concerned about is not changing China's behavior. I think we've learned we can't do that. We can change the behavior, though, of American companies. They need to change their behavior for all our sakes, for the sake of our economic security and our our national security. I mean, that's the issue is not the Olympics. The issue is U.S. companies sponsoring the Olympics. And quite honestly, to be blunt, American companies sponsoring what are covert Chinese attacks on this country. Yes. No, it's astonishing. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about the future of sports writing. I worked at the Globe for a number of years as a columnist, and the Boston Globe sports desk was like the royal family of the paper. Whatever they wanted, they got, and they could fly anywhere, expenses be damned. Mm -hmm. How has the internet changed sports uh, reporting, and what do you think the future of sports reporting is? You know, it's funny. I think a lot of people have been asking that question for so many years. And one thing I've decided is that it's not going to change the nature of sports writing. I think we all thought, well, what will we do when, you know, the mass audience already knows the outcome of the event? Right. And, you know, you're sitting around as a sports writer telling people results that they already know. So we've been in that situation for a few years now. And I think what we've learned is that the audience wants to know not just what the final score was, but what really happened. And that's always been the best sports writing. When someone explains to you, what you really just watched, where the inflection point was, why the game turned. You know, my dad, Dan Jenkins, used to say, find the defining moment and kick it to death. That was his advice for writing a great sports story. And I think it's timeless advice and it remains true. And if you doubt that, all you have to do is read a good Stephen King novel because we all know how it's going to (laughs) end. But he makes it suspenseful anyway by digging around in the psychology of the thing and the suspense of the thing. I tell young sports writers, read Stephen King, read him close, because he'll teach you how to write suspensefully about something that you already know the outcome of. That's great. I love that. (laughs) Tell us about how you go about your business. Do you call in and say, I want to write about this? Or do they call you and say, gee, Sally, could you write about that? You know, it's a real combination. It's about 50-50. I'll see something that hits a nerve and I'll call them and say, I really think I need to write about this. There's certain events where you know you've got to get on the horse, right? whether it's Serena Williams losing a very controversial U.S. Open final or a Kentucky Derby that ends in a foul and a disqualification. You know, those are events that you pick up the phone and say, I bet you need me. And they're like, thank you for calling. We were just about to call you. Right. And then there are, you know, my editor suggested again, literally last week, he said, you know, why don't you think about China and the IOC? And so I went to work and did a bunch of homework and discovered the genius of Matthew Pottinger. And there are just weird little columns that write you, you know, right. I wrote a column about fishing during the COVID pandemic shutdown because a lot of people were doing it and I was doing it early. You know, I'm talking about last spring when we were all first, you know, in our homes, not knowing what we were dealing with, we needed to get it outdoors. And so, so I wrote something about that. Some things just kind of come over you like that and they're quieter columns, but they're some of the most interesting ones I feel like I, you know, that you can do. 
Right. You're a student for life if you're a journalist. You know, you never leave college. You have to study up and learn about things you never expected to learn about because the global sporting world, is, as we've just talked about all day today, is it's become so sprawling and you really find yourself having to master so many different angles on the subject and, and interesting new things come along all the time. Do you like, uh, let's just take Wimbledon, the U.S. Open golf and the first round of the Major League Baseball playoffs. Do you physically go to those events or do you watch them on TV or how does that work? I try to go physically to as many events as I can when when there's not a pandemic going on. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I you know, I've been to Wimbledon a bunch of times. I've been to 10 Olympic Games. I've been to all kinds of stuff. And that's a really important experience. You see more and you learn more on television, but you don't feel more. That's the difference. And it's the feeling that you want to try to sometimes get to readers because they probably saw more than you did watching on their big screen than you did in the press box at a Super Bowl, but you felt more. And you can then try to tell them what it felt like. And that's why you have to keep going to live events. There's just nothing like a March Madness and there's nothing like the hush of a Wimbledon final when it's really tense. Or, I mean, watching Jordan Spieth try to win a British Open at St. Andrews and coming up just short and standing in the pouring rain, you know, while you're doing it, you know, you feel an event in a way that you just can't do at home. Well, don't ever quit your job because (laughs) I so look forward always to reading what you write. So thanks for that. Oh, you're so kind. But anyway, we've taken way too much of your time, but thank you so much for doing it. Have me again. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of the podcast. And thanks again to Sally Jenkins for going through a few speed rounds on sports. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host, Rebecca, to discuss geopolitics, finance, science, and technology.